you guys excited for the Christmas season, overwhelmed, maybe not quite plugged in, or you're just all about it? I'm guessing all of us are somewhere in between. And I, I feel like part of my role is to help you tune into the reality of why Christmas is even a thing, and then to take it beyond that to a place where it makes a difference in our lives. Um, so I want to just start off with... Um, with just a little survey. If you were to take your five senses to Christmas and you were to focus on one in particular, that is your sense of smell, what? Maybe you need to like, it's kind of like if you test cologne at the, or perfume, you know you got the tester and you smell the beans and then you're like, man, these are all smelling alike. If you just stop and just take a deep breath through your nose if you can and think about that smell that gets you in that good place during the Christmas season. What do you think of? Cinnamon? That's a pretty common provoker of the Christmas spirit. Any others? Pine needles and usually there's a lot of them and there's a lot of them on the ground when you get done too. Any other smells that jump out? Bake, bake goods? Like cookies? Baking. Are you baking during Christmas? Yeah. What day? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's probably prying a little too much, isn't it? I was going to come over and, and check out the paint job on the back of your house that day. Yeah. Any other smells that sort of just kind of waft through the air? Yeah, it's sort of a combination of dust and old moldy boxes. But there's something comforting about that, isn't there? That old smell, you're like, ah, time to do that once again. Uh, For me, I think the predominant smell is is the, um, I don't even know of a descriptor other than just to say, the overwhelming presence of burnt pecan pie. And you're probably thinking, that's weird. Kinda. Uh, When my mother-in-law was alive, we we were getting ready to go to Africa, and uh, the thing that she insisted was that we would eat all these things, and she insisted I would eat it, and I'm not really a fan of pecan pie. And she says, I'm gonna put it in the oven and cook it up so that when it's done, we can enjoy it. And you can have some, Leonard. And they put it in the oven, and then they forgot about it. And I'm just watching this thing cook, and I'm like, they're forgetting about that pie, aren't they? Which is a good thing. Pretty soon, smoke starts billowing out of the oven. And everybody's freaking out. And I'm just thinking, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to eat that before I leave the country. Maybe I'll never have to eat it again. Who knows? Hopefully they don't have it over in Africa. For me, it's a version of, I don't know, those cakes, you know, that you send around. You know what I'm talking about? Fruitcakes, yeah. But all that said, it does do something special to you, doesn't it? When I think about that, I think about the community of people that we have within our family and and certainly the larger church family. Uh, And smells have a powerful way of helping us to get in that state of mind that puts us in that place that we need to be this time of year. 
And as I'm just thinking about our, our senses, I'm, I'm, I'm just reminded of how as we go into this series, it's actually a one, it's a single sermon with five parts based on the story, uh, A Christmas Carol. Our message title is Past, Present, and Future, if you've ever seen it, which I'm sure you have. You can't, you can't really escape it, can you? And how is it that a story written in 1844 is still hanging around? I mean, how many stories do you know that are doing that other than maybe the Bible? Not a lot. And you can go about anywhere, can't you, and get some kind of Dickens uh, Christmas Carol memorabilia. It's just a thing. And for a long time, I looked at that, and I'm like, our first Christmas gift was a church that was Dickens, and I'm like, that's great, I don't know what to do with that, because I'm not really that familiar with the story, and we got more Dickens stuff, and then pretty soon I can't avoid it, and then I'm packing it in and out every year, and I'm thinking, oh man, if I break this, I'm dead. And that's really been my only relationship to it. But the thing that has pulled me into this whole storyline of a Christmas is the fact that I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the time and I'm going to reread the story and I'm going to ask, is there anything within the story that God wants to use to speak to me, to speak to us? And I feel like God answered my prayer uh, because I've been a pastor for 30 years and I've preached a lot of sermons and I've done a lot of Christmas type of settings where we Advent and Christmas Eve service and things like that. You guys hear me okay? And, and as, as I've done that, I've got to be honest with you, an occupational hazard is you start to get a little bit jaded. You're like, you know, it's the same thing over and over and over. And I'm like, Lord, I'm not in a good place in my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm losing my, my feeling for Christmas, and I don't like it. And it got to the point where I, I just honestly was getting tired of it. That's just me confessing my sins before everybody. And you know this is a church, so you have to forgive me and show me grace and healing and acceptance and forgiveness. And I thought, you know what, I've got to approach this differently. I've got to look at it through a different set of eyes. And one thing that I do know is that no matter who you are, God will use the things within your life, the stories, the signposts, the different characteristics that go to make up our experience to speak to us. And I believe that since 1844, the story of Christmas Carol has actually spoken to a lot of people. Because there's a lot within it that actually says a great deal about what's inside us. Now, if I, if, if I were to just have you for a second tell me a word from a Christmas Carol, what, what would be the word that comes to mind? Scrooge, and what is one thing that he's known for saying quite frequently? Bah humbug, okay, I don't think people said that before then, but it seems like everybody's familiar with that word, right? Bah humbug, which essentially means Christmas is not my season. Matter of fact, anything to do with Christmas is, is, is not of interest to me at all, and that's where we start out in the story. Because what I like about the story is how... A person, through the course of their lifetime, arrived at a place where they have made themselves financially secure beyond anything you could ever imagine, while at the same time 
basically pushing away as many people as possible to the point where he would no longer have any sensitivity whatsoever to other human beings. And he would just go to work. He would make lots of money. He would get over on people at the exchange because he knew how to work them. And he would take a lot of pride in the fact that, well, I'm Ebenezer Scrooge. And no one gets over on me. And I'm looking for whatever opportunity that I can find to advance my own personal cause. I'll take a lonely walk home every evening. Eat a lonely bowl of porridge by the fire every evening and then go to my lonely bed and lay down and sleep and wake up and do the same thing over and over and over. And as much as it sounds like it would be great to have all of the money that he has, for whatever reason, his humanity was diminished to a subhuman existence. And I think that's a good place to start with the story because when God looks at us, he says... You weren't made to push people away from yourself and isolate yourself from community. You were actually made to be a part of a community. And you weren't made when you felt the pains of life, personally and relationally, to begin to wall yourself off. But rather, you were made to find healing and forgiveness and wholeness. And this story is about somebody who maybe is just like you and I in some ways. I mean, that's the bad thing about looking at stories sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I always like to identify with the the good guy. But as I'm reading through A Christmas Carol, I'm finding that there are too many things like this guy that are like me. And I'm not liking that too well. And I don't know that I saw it that clearly until I read the story. And I think God maybe from time to time steps into your world and mine, shakes us up a little bit and says, if you keep going on the path that you're going, you're not going to wind up in a good place. However, if you come to your senses, maybe, just maybe, you can have a redo. You can reset it. And you can get in a healthy place again. Now there's a story in the Bible that I'm going to start off with. And it's in Luke chapter 16. And it's a description of what happens to people in this case. And I'm not trying to pick on wealthy people or anything like that. That's not the point. But in this case, the scripture said in Luke 16 that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the guys like, like me, they had come to a place where they had discounted the story of God's promises through his people and ultimately a son coming out of that. They had discounted really even other people because they felt like they didn't have their act together enough and so they just kind of cast them aside. And these people were of all things clergy. the religious leaders. And the scripture said they love their money. And then Jesus said, let me tell you a story about what happens when that becomes the all-consuming thing. In this case, Um, We're just going to look at it through that lens. And Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. As pathetic as that was, there came a time when he died 
And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. Because I am in agony in this fire. And Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received the bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to there to you cannot and you can't cross over and be with us. And this is the point that I want to draw from this. He answered then, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they have all the information they would ever need. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't listen to those guys, they're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And I just want to underscore that last line, won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now why is that? Why would somebody not be convinced even if someone rose from the dead? Perhaps. They've gotten into such a place in life where they're so used to doing the same thing over and over and over, they can't even bring themselves to do anything different. It's just their way of life. They've made their choices, and now the choice has made them. And as Jesus is telling the story, he's basically lobbying a warning shot across the bow of all of us, indicating that we have to be very careful in life about how we prioritize what's important and what's not. At least the guy who was in Hades had some community. But the problem was the people in the community with him were just brothers who were out to exploit other people and find opportunities and and basically get as rich as they possibly could. Jesus said there's no hope for them either because they've made their choice and they've become what that choice created. Now for you and I, God's looking at us and he's saying, I love you exactly where you are. And I would never want you to make choices that would cause you to wind up in a place where your own self-inflicted hell would begin. Because a lot of times when Jesus talked about hell, did you know that it was sort of like you're already creating that kind of on earth by how you're living your life out. And some of us are in church because we've known that and we've said we've got to put the brakes on that. We have to change it. And some of us, we've done that, but then we get a little off course. And community gets to be a little hard. People get to be a little bit frustrating. And that doesn't even bring into consideration how some of us have wounds that go way, way back that cause us to get keep from wanting to get too close. And God looks at us and he says... There's someone that I'm sending into the world that I believe can change all that for you. And that's who we're celebrating this Advent. But as I'm ramping up into the story, and hopefully you're still with me, 
I, I want you to know that my, my idea of Ebenezer Scrooge, because whenever you hear the word Scrooge, you know what Scrooge means? It means to basically to, 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 to grasp, grasp onto and, and to squeeze, which kind of makes sense. That's what he did. He looked for money and he found the opportunity he did. But can anyone tell me what Ebenezer means? Has anybody ever thought about naming their kid Ebenezer? Really? Maybe some of you are like, yeah, I did once, but I'm not going to raise my hand. And maybe you did because you actually knew what the word meant, which I honestly didn't know for a long time, but it actually is from the Bible. And it's in a hymn. You know, the hymn, it says, Be Mine Ebenezer, which I had no idea what that meant. But when you look at 1 Samuel 7, it says, God is my rock of help. Catch that? God is my rock of help. And as I'm looking at this story, the Christmas story, I see something at work where a person has made their choices, their choices are clearly making them, and they have created their own self-inflicted hell where they're alienated from so many people. And God is saying, we're going to do a redo. And what I want to ask today is how can you and I do a redo where we need to do the redo in our lives? If you've ever heard or seen or watched the Christmas story, you know that the second, the second well, there's the, 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 the ramp-up ghost, Marley, and then the first ghost is the ghost of Christmas past, right? And the storyline goes something like this. He has pushed everyone away, he has become completely callous towards other human beings. And then this angel visits him in the evening. Right around the time Marley said that the clock would strike the hour. And then the ghost would come. And then you would begin to see something that you hadn't, been, hadn't seen in a long time. And you would think they would show him something new and different and exciting like a vision of the 20th century or something like that. But you know what he did? He took him back in time. And I want to show you an opening scene where the, and, and it's from the 1984 version of A Christmas Story. But the opening scene that has George C. Scott, it's a pretty true depiction of what the story actually says. Uh, this is the scene, and so please bear with me on the CGI and the costuming and all the cinematography, and just take it for what it can mean. Let's just show that real quick. We shall be invisible and silent as the grave. You will now see a child, a youth. You will see yourself, Ebenezer. The air is so clean. How different from the city. Do you know where you are? <laughs> of course. I, I was bred here. I was a boy in this place. That's Daniel Custis. <laughs> Robert Estes. Hello, Daniel. The big one there, that's David. Tyler, David! Look here, it's Ebenezer! 
I told you, Ebenezer, they can't hear you. How happy they all seem. That's right, they do. Yes, well, it's time to move on. Come along, Ebenezer. You know the way. I could walk it blindfolded. Your school. I remember. And it's Christmas Day. There's a boy in there, neglected. The boy is deserted by his friends and his family. His mother is dead. His father holds him a grudge. Why does his father hold him a grudge? She died in childbirth. His birth. Weep for the boy if the tears will come. Here's his friends, even on this day. From his beloved books. His Alibaba. <laughs> Dear old honest Alibaba. And the Sultan's groom turned upside down with the genie. But not a real child to talk to. Not a living person. Robinson Crusoe, not real. <laughs> and Friday, and the parrot with green body and yellow tail, not real. He may do this boy. Well, that's just a little slice of what would be a succession of scenarios that he's taken into. And the very first one that Ebenezer Scrooge uh, encounters is a vision of himself as a child in a school that he had been sent away from his home to be a part of, of, sent away from his dad who was pretty mean, from his sister who was his beloved, sent away from that community, that little community called his family, to be a part of a boarding school experience where he could at least have friends there only to be the only one left behind whenever they made the Christmas break. And so he's left sitting in the schoolroom by himself, disconnected, un, really feeling unloved, lonely. And the only friends that he has are two books, one of them being Arabian Nights and the other one, Robinson Crusoe. And at least in his mind, he could console himself with imaginary characters that would at, at least provide some semblance of presence of others, even though they weren't necessarily real. And as Ebenezer Scrooge is looking at that scene, two things begin to happen in his heart. Two things that he hasn't experienced in a very long time, at least in that way. And the first is, he's looking at that child not through jaded eyes of, yeah, that's what it was like when I was a kid. But you start to see compassion beginning to well up for him, which is not a, a, a frequent, as a matter of fact, it's a foreign experience for him. And the second thing that he feels is desire. Desire to go back and to begin again. And as the story begins... Uh, to change his heart, I think it speaks to us. Because perhaps, in our own way, God is saying, I like a lot of things that are happening in your life. But just like Ebenezer Scrooge, there maybe was a slight. Maybe there was a resentful father, or parent, or an opportunity that you were thwarted to have uh, an oversight. Maybe you were excluded. 
And you can see how that pain begins to work on him in such a way that he retreats into, into his books. But the sad thing is about this is this father that you're getting ready to see another clip from is the type of guy that is so strict and so unloving and so uncaring that he doesn't receive any kind of compassion from him. Matter of fact, it's the total opposite. His father declared bankruptcy a short while after that scene happened. And when he did, those two books that were his treasured companions, they went off to the sale. And so he not only lost his family, but he lost the thing that he could call his. And as you look at the pain begin to mount, you start to see this guy a little bit differently. And as God looks at our lives and knows our experiences and knows the things that happened to us and things that we've even done to ourselves, did you know that God is saying, I look through my eyes at you with that same desire to see you in a better place, to see you made whole and with compassion so that you can begin to maybe have another opportunity. Let's see how this unfolds and then I'll comment just a little bit more. I haven't been overfeeding you, that's certain. I've, I've grown, I think. Yes, most boys do. Fan has told you you won't be moving back here. Yes, sir. It's time you made your way in the world. I've arranged an apprenticeship for you. You'll move into Mr. Fezziwig's establishment in three days' time. Three days, Father? I'd hoped we'd have my brother home for longer. Longer? Three days is quite long enough for both of us. Don't you think, Ebenezer? Yes, sir. Quite long enough. You finished back there? All safe and secure, sir. The carriage firm. On our way. Into the carriage, mine. Fan pleaded for more time, but my father was very stern man. Fan. She died a young woman. She had such a generous nature. Yes, too young. Old enough to bear a child. One son. Fred, your nephew. Fred Hollowell, yes. Who bears a strong resemblance to your sister. Does he? I never noticed. You never noticed? I'm beginning to think you've gone through life with your eyes closed. Open them. Open them wide. Go ahead, Josh. Go ahead and put the other one on. A silly man. Silly? Why silly? What did he do, after all, to deserve the praises of those apprentices? Spent a few pounds? Danced like a monkey? Beamed a great smile? Well, the happiness he gives, I gave was quite as great as though it had cost a thousand pounds. Just small things. Just a quick question. 
How many of you ever said to yourself or to someone that's close to you, I just wish I was a kid again, where life was a lot less complicated, where things were easy, where we didn't have all the responsibilities? You ever get that nostalgic sense that, yeah, it was a lot more easier to be alive back then without all the care and concerns and worries that you have? I, I know I've done that before. Uh, but I've also had those moments where I felt like I kind of lost my, my, my bearings, like what mattered and what didn't matter, the foundation for even who I was as a human being. And I remember preaching uh, at a church over in Illinois, and I'd been there for about six years, and I was going through this time of soul searching. And about 10 miles away from where that church was, was a place where I spent a lot of time growing up. It was a, it was a horse farm. We had had horses as a kid, and my mom was uh, into, into dressage and, and, and things like that. And, and um, probably for about a 10-year span, the summers that we spent on that horse farm were probably the most uh, endearing to me of any memory that I had as a child. And I remember just getting in my car and driving one day because I was just, I was just kind of lost in my thoughts. And I, and I wound up at this place I hadn't been to in, in years, I mean literally since I was probably a sophomore in high school. And I remember driving there and just looking at the barn and looking at the landscape and then having all of these memories begin to flood. And I thought, you know, this, this is where I came from. And there are a lot of good experiences that emerged out of this. And interestingly enough, it helped me to see some things in myself in that moment that, that I think I'd forgotten about. Some of the values that I had, some of the aspirations that I had as a kid that have really carried with me through the course of my life even now. And it, it was the only thing that would work. It was almost like a type of therapy that said, if I can just go back in time a little bit, I can reclaim something that I seem to have lost along the way. And in hindsight, I didn't even realize what had happened until I was thinking about the story. And I saw what emerged in his life as you and I are watching it. And I, I recognize how in our own way we sometimes can allow wounds, things that we're unwilling to forget that make us bitter, things that perhaps have taken us a little bit off course, how those can begin to change who we are in ways that we don't even realize because they're so subtle. As Ebenezer Scrooge was having this encounter with his dad who said, you're going to go to Fezziwigs and you're going to go and, and, and serve an apprenticeship, that may not mean anything to you, but if you, if you read the story, uh, the thing that is so cool about that is that Fezziwig was a, he was a businessman like Ebenezer Scrooge. However, on Christmas, what he would do is he would just take the shop that all of his employees worked at, and he would clear the floor, and he would say, all right, now it's time to party. And he would have, in, in, their, in their event, uh, ale and there would be lots of food and then there was dancing and it was at that venue in the story that he met Bill. And out of that awesome festivity, which as you saw the look on his face, I, I, I think it depicted it well. There was this desire to go back to that moment and to reset it and to begin to live again, knowing that that was a, that was a special, special time. And did you catch that the, the, 
the ghost of Christmas past cynically said, unbelievable how much money he dropped on that event. Can you believe that, Ebenezer? That is just unconscionable, isn't it? That he would take hard-earned money and throw it away on a celebration like that. But when you see his response, you start to see how this is working on him a little bit. And he actually defends Fezziwig saying, uh, let me just put a quote up there. Uh, this is actually from the, from the book itself. Um, he said to the ghost, this is what's got me worked up because what you said isn't true. Um, and, and this is all I can tell you. That, that, that man that I used to work for got it right. He had the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. It was all in his approach to how he managed us as employees. And I know he's thinking to himself something that I sure didn't do. And then he goes on to say uh, this. Say that his power lies in words and looks and things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. You see something happening here? It's a perspective that is beginning to change in his heart because he looked back and whatever painful experiences he had, he looked at it through the fresh eyes of perspective. And when God sent his son into the world, he did that for... Primarily, that reason for us to be able to look at everything that's happened in our lives, happened to us, happened in us, happened through us. And he gives you and I an opportunity to reset it. The book itself is very dark in its opening chapters. And what is interesting about how it unfolds is it starts to get brighter and brighter and brighter. There's a light that shows Everything for what it is. And he has this clarity that's increasing to such a degree that he starts to look at himself and he sees for the first time that he's been way off course for far too long. And there's another episode that happens after that. And it has to do with Bell, who he was engaged to marry, and they're at a critical moment, sitting on a bench together. And they're talking about their future together. And she's saying, you know, you were so concerned about providing security for us as a couple that you just went full bore and you married, you married, you married money. You married an idol. And in some ways, I, I feel replaced. And this is the exchange. He said, what idol has displaced you? And he rejoined, he rejoined because she challenged him on that. And she said, a golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world, he said. There is nothing on which it is, hard, is so hard as poverty, which we all know. And there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. Meaning that you're kind of darned if you do, darned if you don't. But what's inside is this deep-seated fear that just like the books that were taken away, my only friends, if I don't have enough resources, 
what we have together could be taken away. And so his whole thinking, his whole line of thought, maybe kind of like yours and mine sometimes is, I am insecure unless I completely and fully devote myself to something. Even though I may worship, even though I may say that I trust God in reality, I'm not so sure. And what God is saying to us through the birth of his son, look at how he was born. What type of environment did the very son of God who descended from the glorious presence of the Father in all of its richness, becoming fully human and fully man as an infant of all the vulnerable states to arrive on this planet, and then to add insult to injury, to find yourself in a place of utter impoverishment, laying amongst the farm animals because there just isn't the accommodations available. And then through the course of his life, he said, I didn't have a place to lay my head. And I believe that's intentional. I think it is God's way of telling you and I, there are a number of things that happen to us when we look at Jesus. The, the, one of the first ones is, we begin to see ourselves differently. We look backwards and we see it through the lens of his life here on earth. And what we also see is a poor person who trusted God at every turn, and God provided faithfully at every turn. We saw a person as he was mocked and crucified and all the things leading up to that, unjustly wounded and treated and broken. And we saw a person that God healed in the fullness of glory. And when you and I come to worship, it's different. Because what Jesus offers is different. And as a pastor, I've seen the wounds. I've heard the stories. I know the pain. I know the abuses. I know the exploitation. I know all of this stuff. And I know that we bring that into this room. And some of us feel like God can't do anything about it. But I beg to differ. Because the power of what God has been able to accomplish through his son is continuing to ripple out through time. And it changes our hearts from being walled off and unfeeling and jaded to opening up and perhaps being trusting because Jesus is in the equation. And as I'm looking at the story and I'm seeing these things unfold, I see a guy longing for something that he never could quite put together because he was so scared and he was so insecure and so untrusting that God could help him along the way. The scene is kind of tragic because you see a woman with several children alongside her who are just in a very happy way, uh, just enjoying a day in a courtyard. And as he's looking at this woman, he recognizes the face as the one who he was once betrothed to. And then on the, on, on the, on the, on, on the periphery comes a carriage and inside of it is a gentleman who hops out and has all of these children running up to him and in that in that in that fun family melee is joy it's a community it's a sense of we're here together and as Ebenezer's looking at that he sees the one thing that really made all the difference and that was a connection to people that he could truly love and do life with that he made a choice to break off. Not because he's inherently an evil person, 
but because he's a broken person and he's just trying to be safe and he's just trying to protect himself. And when Jesus came into our world, he said, I don't have any resources except what the Father gave me. And the circumstances that I come into the world in are, they're humiliating. And this stuff is humiliating because it is part of our humanity. And when he comes into the world and we face all kinds of trials and struggles and things that would create untold fears and uncertainties, God says, it's okay. Because in the darkness we have seen a great light. And as the radiance of that light continues to expand, there is a a very poor mother who has a child being formed in her womb from the very act of the divine meeting the human. And she sees what a difference he is able to make. And she sees the hopes and the fears of everyone. And she makes this declaration from Luke chapter 1. The mother of Jesus Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the humble. And on the second week of Advent, part of the light that you and I experience together is the fact that the darkness that God has in us that perhaps hides and obscures our ability to truly live can find through confession, through just bringing it to the Lord, through asking for His help, through whatever means that He directs you with, God and change you into a different person. He can give you that redo that you long for. The hardest step, though, is to say, I need that. And what I love about the story is at first Ebenezer's like, yeah, this is a great story, let's move on. But by the time he sees the vision of a family that could have been, he recognizes things need to change. And in that humiliated state, he said, I know I've won the world economically, but I have lost completely relationally. I need a redo. Pretty humbling for a guy who just a few hours before was getting over on the stock exchange's most canny investors. And maybe God's saying to you, you know, maybe you need a redo as well. Maybe that thing, that bitterness, that thing that you relate to from the past that you've related to a certain way the whole time, Maybe together we can relate to that differently and you can find healing and I can renew you. And the desires that you had, that he had in his eyes for community, for relationship, for love, for rightness, for being made whole, those are the desires that I want to see come alive in you. And that's the second installment of our message today. I don't know how God's working on you in this five-part sermon. But he's definitely been working on me. 
And there are areas in my life that I'm grateful that I'm going through this story together with you in. Because it's showing me something about myself that I've needed to see. And maybe God's doing that with you right now. So as I end and we get ready to sing, I, I want to pray for you. Would you bow with me? Father, as we invite you into this gathering, the Father who is our creator and our sustainer, but even more than that, the one who sees us through the eyes of longing and desire to see your children be made whole. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you humbled yourself so profoundly to become part of our experience and being tested and tried in the course of it all, just trusting your Father and showing us what it's truly like to trust Him. And Holy Spirit, thank you for that enabling that takes all of the bitterness, the anger, the jealousy, the rage, the discord, all the darkness that we have in our hearts that we are so uneasy with and conflicted by. And through the blood of Jesus, replacing it with a fruit that is so rich of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Lord, I just pray for everyone in this room. You know our hearts. You know our brokenness. You know the way that we need to see things differently and then change. And I just pray that you would continue to work that work of transformation so that we may be fully the people that we are called to be. Not just with you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in community there, but with each other as well. I just pray for everyone here that we could experience the richness of that community and know life again. And I just thank you, Father, for these who have heard the message. I pray that the words I've said are honoring to you and hopefully impactful in a way that fulfills your purpose. Amen.